Welcome to the DMF. I am your host, Justin Yachts, and today I have a special guest who I'm interviewing, award-winning playwright Michael McKeever, and enjoy. Okay, I have a special guest with me today. I have award-winning playwright Michael McKeever. How are you doing, sir? I'm great, Justin. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I, I was fascinated because through a lot of my research, I found that you um, you came from the commercial industry. Your mother, you know, worked at 30 Rock. Your brother is um, is an illustrator for comic books. I mean, you've gone around the gambits. But the one thing I couldn't find out is um, where did you go to school? I went to the Art Institute of Fort Lauderdale, which is part of the Art mm. Institute chain, but down here in, in Lauderdale. With a, I got my degree in advertising design. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So um, you started as an actor first, and then you started coming into the commercial industry. One of the things that really fascinated me that you talked about is, for you as a playwright, is the deadline. You said that the deadline is one of the things that you needed because that gives you something to work towards. Can you elaborate a little bit like, is that something you always knew you needed or is that something you found through the commercial industry? Yes, uh, it's not that, I, it's simply uh, the way that I, I learned to work. Um, I've always said, I don't need time. I just need a deadline when I'm working on a play. Um, when I was when I was in my twenties, I worked in uh, advertising and in film television production. And we did a lot of commercials, a lot of uh, you know product commercials on TV and that sort of thing. And everything you did, everything I designed, was on deadline. And so I just I just that became part of my work ethic. Is that I knew I if, you know if I had two days, if I had one day, if I had five hours, I knew I had a deadline. I, I knew I had to hit it. On that, you know, I had the product had to be done by that deadline. So it wasn't a matter of, well, I'll see if I can make it. It was like, no, you had to make it. So whenever yeah. I've been given a commission or whenever I um, start working on a new project, I'll have a subject that I'm interested in or uh, I'll, I'll have an idea that I want to do. I will give myself a deadline. I'll, I'll give myself, you know, two months or a month to get that first draft done. It doesn't have to be like what's going to end up on stage, but I give myself that deadline because I know I'll have it done by then. And then you have that, that first piece from which you can develop and change or cut away and, and make it what it needs to be. But I, one of the things I've always, um, what I've found in this industry is that there are so many great ideas and so many really talented writers who start working on a project and we get in our own heads and we, we talk ourselves out of it or we, we psych ourselves into thinking that it's not what it should be. And so the projects just fall away. But I give myself a deadline, I make sure that I get it done. And that's that's the goal for that. Now, do you start, do you like to have the ending in mind or do you start with just an idea and then see where it develop, goes into? You no, know, I always, I, I tend to think about my ideas um, for a long time. I will think about a, a concept, you know, in any given time I can have two, three, five ideas in the back of my head that I'm, that I'm working on. And then one will really start to take hold and I'll think about it and I'll say, well, let me do this point of view, let me do that point of view, oh, that's good too. So I'll be thinking about it and then when I start writing it, I write relatively fast. I generally have a good idea about where the play is going to go. 
Um, and then uh, I start working on it. And about 60% of the time it ends up, the, uh, the ending ends up being what the ending is, but there are several instances where just by nature of the writing process, the ending has evolved or in some cases completely changed. Now, since you come from like the commercial industry, are you kind of almost storyboarding it in your head in some ways? That is a, a brilliant way of putting it. Yes, I completely storyboard it in my head. I have an idea and I don't write linear. I know I have wonderful friends who are great writers who will write beginning, middle, end and, and write scene by scene by scene. I never do that. I, you know, I, I have an outline that I, I'm following that I kind of know where the story is going to go. Um, but I never write beginning, middle, and end. I'll, I'll write scenes, and as long as they stick onto that spine, then it's great. Sometimes, as the spine gets fully formed and as the story continues, I'll have really wonderful scenes that I really love that simply do not serve the play anymore, and so they fall away. Interesting. So when you're writing, do you have like a certain process? I, I see we're in your office. Do you, is, this, is this where most of the writing happens? Or do you, or somebody that likes to write outside of, uh, outside of the house, like you go to no. a coffee shop or something? Yeah, no, I used to, I used to have, a, um, I do a lot of handwriting in journals. I, in fact, uh, under one of the shelves, I have just stacks and stacks of journals that aren't really used as journals. They're used for dialogue. I'll write dialogue. And every so often I will still jot down, handwriting a note um, about a play. Just so I don't want it to, to, I don't want to lose the thought. Um, but more times than not, you know, I'll sit right now at the computer where I am right now in, in my office. Um, and, and that's where it happens. I used to be, when I first started writing, I used to write late into the night. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I like the, the quietness of, of you know, writing at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning. But now as I've gotten older, it's kind of swapped over. Now what will happen is I'm usually asleep by midnight. Um, and I'll wake up six, sometimes as early as five or six. And when, you know, when my husband and, and the dog are still asleep, I'll, you know, just do the same thing. But on the other end, I'll make myself a cup of coffee and come into the office and sit and write. Now, are you somebody that needs a lot of hours in the day to, to get, to get going? Or do you just like sit down and you're already in it? Yeah, no, I sit down and in it. I, I, one of the things I love about writing is that it doesn't feel like a real job. Uh, and so that's kind of the things that I love. Um, I've never, I, you know, you hear about people like Tennessee Williams that every morning would wake up and, and get to work and start writing. I don't do that. I'll go sometimes two, three months without writing. Um, mm -hmm. And then when I start working on a project or I have a play that I'm really excited about, I will do it and I will keep, I will start it and I'll keep working on that play until it's finished, until I hit the deadline that I've set for myself. But I, I don't, I don't like giving myself that um, daily regimen regimen of, of sitting down and, and writing because it feels too much like a real job. So you don't like the idea of the structure thing. I, I, I gather from that. You like yeah. the idea of like, I have this, I'm going to finish it, but then when I'm done, I'm going to put it aside. And I, I don't have to like, you're not going through this routine every day. Like no. Stephen King has to have like four hours every day. Right. He writes, you, well, you like to put it away. And then when it's time to bring it back out, you do it. Exactly. And that's, that's great that you, that you can do that. That you well, can just, one of, uh, it, It's one of the perks about working in the theater too, because every, every project 
you know, here's a comedy that I'm doing for a 400 seat house. Here's a, a straight play that I'm going to be doing in a 50 seat house. This here's a, a historic, you know, a historic um, musical that I'm working. Everything changes, and and I like having the um, the variety in in my projects. What would you say? Because coming from my design and doing posters and stuff, what would you say that adds to being a playwright? Do you th do you think it added to you? Oh, I do. I think that's a great question. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a very visual person because I spent my my 20s as an art as an art director and as an illustrator. Um, now, as a writer, whenever I start working on a project, the first one of the first things I like to explore is what the set's going to look like. What's the you know what the images are going to be, and I like mm -hmm. I like that when I'm setting up um, uh, scenes in the play as well. What happens, and you know, is it going to be a uh, eight people in this living room or is it just going to be two and what's going to happen in that moment and and I try to picture how how it's going to lay out and how it's going to play mind you when that when it actually goes into rehearsal and um, a director takes over I let that vision fall away completely because I think it's important that um, it, you work with your actors and your director and it because theater is such a collaborative for, uh, art form that it's essential that you you open yourself up to that. So I've never been a stickler for saying, well, you must, you know, this you must follow these stage directions, or people must be sitting here. If, you know, if a director wants to explore variations on on how to lay out a, a scene, I'm always open to that. So you're not like married to the images that come in your head. You're no. just like these are these are great for me writing, but it's going to change. You're not like, okay, that stove needs to be black. You know, it's like you, you can like, that's, that's very rare because a lot of people that are like visual artists like that and write from that, they, it's very hard to separate between the two. Do you think that comes from being in the commercial uh, industry and having to, because in the commercial, it's so fast that, you know, if something doesn't work, we gotta just change it. We don't have time to wait. Yeah, it, I, I think more than that, I think that's ex extremely um, insightful and, and, and very valid. But even more than that, it comes with age. You know, because mm -hmm. when I was younger, you know, I'll never forget there was a play called The Garden of Hanalis, which was one of the first important plays that I, I wrote. And there was a reference to a purse that, you know, she takes out a purse, it's green. She has a small green purse. And the props person said, we're, um, we're having trouble finding the green purse. Does it have to be green? I said, oh, yes, it has to be green because it represents money and this and blah, blah. Now I'm like, no, whatever, whatever color you want to make it, make it, make it, you know, make it easy on yourself. So I think that comes just from, you know, being around the block enough times and doing this enough times. You know, there are certain things that need to be specific because it's, it's essential in the storytelling. But more times than not, if, you know, if it serves the play, then have at it. The, the rest of it, it just ends up being... I hate to say it, but ego, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, there has to be ego because, I mean, you're putting your work out there. I mean, right. it's... Right. The, the, if you don't have an ego about it in some ways, you would just be like, it, it would be changed a million times. Well, that's you have true, to, Yeah, I have to sit there and be like, okay, now this is, this is what I need, you know, here. Uh, Oliver Stone always talks about that, where he would be in... Um, no, and he said, it's my job to make sure that it's still maintain, I still maintain the vision within all the chaos because the chaos is just running through and it's very easy to just be like, well, that's easy. We'll just put that there. And then you look at it and you're like, this isn't my movie. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right.
And to me, it's always about serving the play. Does it serve the play? Does it serve the story that has to be told? And that, not, not necessarily the playwright or the director or you know, specific actors, does it serve the play? And, and as long mm -hmm. as that concept doesn't get you know, messed up, then I think, I think it, it, it works. Now, do you write with dialogue in mind or does it always come from the images, the place? Like, where does it? That, that might be the best question anyone's ever asked me. That's a really good question. Um, I, I like my-, my I'm I, flattered. I, what's that? I'm flattered. That, that means a lot to me. Thank it's you. That's great. Um, a dialogue tends to come uh, naturally and, and comes from the, uh, the situations in the scene. That being said, I, I try to make the, the, I'm very specific when it comes to rhythms about dialogue. I think sometimes if you add an, a simple word or take away a word, or if an actor tends to um, change things up, it botches up the rhythms. So the, the, if there's a twofold answer to the question. And one is, yes, the, the dialogue comes from the situation being told in that particular scene, but at the same time, when I write dialogue, it's very specific because it has to do with rhythms and there's a poetry to, to all writing, whether it's, whether it's Oliver Stone or, or Aaron Sorkin or Tennessee Williams or, or even someone like F. Scott Fitzgerald, there's a very specific rhythms to the way the words are written. And if you, if you change it up, it really botches things. It, it can really botch things up and can really uh, make it clumsy. And, and so I'm, I'm very specific about dialogue and, and I'm very specific when I write the dialogue because I, I think rhythm is important. As you remind, your, a lot of your writing reminds me of, uh, it's kind of a cross between David Mamet and Edward Albee in, in, the, way, in the way I see it. It's, it's, it's coming right at you, but it's, the prose is really, you know, is really exact. That's beautiful, and I take that as a huge compliment. Thank you so much. Yes, you're, you're well. Because you mentioned in another interview that Aaron Sorkin is somebody that like inf influenced you. Is is it his plays or his films or like just all his work in general? Yes, yes. his it, when it comes right down to it, his dialogue, whether it be on West Wing or on. Um, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird or his early stuff like Few Good Men. There's just such a beautiful talk about rhythm. I mean, there's such uh, there, the economy that he uses with his words, the way his words, his dialogue is, is spelled out, the way one person finishes a sentence and the next one comes and back and forth. I call these things runs and his runs are so beautiful. I mean, they're just so they're completely natural um, in the most unnatural way. And I, and I mean that as a complete compliment because I, there's something just beautiful about that. You, you, you have writers like Williams who did the same thing. Williams had this beautiful poetry that was just so artificial, but at the same time, there was such a gritty naturalness to his characters. And so you, you just found yourself lost in that, in the poetry of it, but at the same time, it didn't become too stilted or too heavy-handed. Neil Simon did the same thing with his comedies. Um, I mean, the man created sitcoms as we know them today, which makes his, his writing a little dated, but at the same time, if you look at his original, his work, and the way he, he would work out one, two, three, laugh, one, two, three, laugh, it's very specific and, and really quite, quite beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned Tennessee Williams, you talked about that, the artificial, this, 
can you elaborate just a little more on what you mean by that artificial, this, this artificial flavor the, that, that he gets? The, the thing about Williams, and again, don't get me wrong, Williams to this day is my favorite playwright. I just think he's a gorgeous writer. But the, the poetry that he, his, his character spoke, um, whether it's uh, the, um, uh, you know, Maggie the Cat or, or um, Blanche or, or even someone as, as, as primal as Stanley in Streetcar, there is just, again, it's all about rhythm and about poetry where it's, it's not normal dialogue because it's like, wow, people, people don't talk with those kind of curly cues. Um, but at the same time, it, you can't help but, but really feel for them. So the, the emotional core is there, but at the same time, it's just spoken in this beautiful, you know, poetic uh, voice that he gave all of his characters. Even towards yeah. the end, when his writing wasn't what it was, you know, in his younger years, it was still yeah. it's still there and, and just beautiful, just gorgeous is, is a good word for it. Now, something I've noticed in a lot of your writing is you tend to write a lot about like underdogs and people forced to to conform to society's unwritten rules. Is that something? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from my absolute admiration and appreciation of folks like that. Um, I've always um, uh, been very fortunate in my life where I've, I've, I've conformed to the world around me. Um, I've been very much, okay, this is what I need to do. I'll, you know, I'll do it. I have no problem with that. I look back now and go, ah, sometimes I wish I hadn't been that. But, you know, I can't complain because my life is what it is now. I'm very blessed and very happy with you know the life i've led and the life i'm leading but at the same times um i look at some people that you know who have really taken a stand and have fought and, and have fought the the system and have you know made change as a result of it so i'm like i said i'm a big fan of that kind of stance and so i um i celebrate it in my work there's, there's you mentioned that i i can now see the what you were doing with uh, with um, Billy Haynes and and Henry Wilson, who well, you play Henry Wilson in the two else. Yes. I saw in uh, Town and Country magazine that they they did an article when I was doing my research and they spelled it with one L and I was like, you should fire your editor. I know, doesn't that kill you? Yes, I have. Like, to, how do you not do that? How do you I, not know? I that? have to tell you, it's one of those things. Like like the, Billy Haynes's um, partner for whatever it was, fifty years. Um, was Jimmy Shields and his name was IE. And every time I read any kind of reference or any kind of book on it and they spell Jimmy with a Y or, or Henry, um, Henry Wilson with one L, it's like, oh, come on. I know, it's like, it's like you have editors. How are you yeah. like missing that? You know, I'm like, I see it like right away. And I'm just like, oh, why? <laughs> but yeah. So I can see you kind of, you know, struggling with that because Henry Wills, you know, they're the complete opposite in the play, The Code. And that's, that's interesting. You know, I, so, I, I have to say, I loved, I read the um, uh, Billy Haynes uh, story about, you know, that, that his, the famous story about Billy Haynes being the first openly gay um, movie star and how he lost his career because of it. And, and, it's been it's been written about. It's been put in plays, and um, uh, it, they always the the the, the short the, the few plays that I've read uh, based on it. They always put it in 1933, where you know he's being told by the by Louis B. Mayer, you know that he has to get married and be straight and blah blah blah. 
Um, and it, it's, it's lovely, but I wanted to do something so different. I wanted, I said, how, how can I tell the story? Because I think it's an important story. How can I tell it, but from a different point of view, from a different way? I said, know what you have to do. This is a man who is defiantly gay. Let's put him in a room with someone who is self-loathing. Let's do that. So if you just, you don't have to look far in Hollywood to find the, you know, the biggest self-loathing gay man in Hollywood in, in, in that era was um, Henry Wilson. So I have no idea if they ever met or if they ever even knew each other. I mean, they, they, they did travel in some of the same circles, but there's no reference saying they you know, ever mm -hmm. knew each other. So I said, you know what? They're, they're in Hollywood in the same time. I'm gonna put them in the same room. I'm gonna put them in the same room and have them debate who is the winner and who is the loser in this scenario. Here's a man who yeah. was defiantly gay and lost his career because of it, but still was able to redefine himself. And yet here's a man who played by the rules and stayed in the closet, a dark, horrible, sad closet that he ended up dying a sad and lonely man, but at the same time was able to work and succeed, you know, in his heyday. Um, and, and so let's put them in the same room and have them fight, you know, for the soul of a young up and coming actor. And then I threw into a little bank hit in just for the laughs. So, yeah. And you've been, and you've been, you've put her, you've mentioned her in, um, like sweet, uh, surrender that sweet one surrender? or sweet surrender. Yes. Yeah, sweet surrender is, 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 a, is another yeah. 1940s play. That's a farce. Yeah. Cause I, yeah. So I read, um, I, I read your other, yeah, that, that play, uh, I, read what I could of it they say at the end it's like okay now you uh we can't give you the electronic version I was like <laughs> just call me I will send you anything you want I, you know, I know play right now you can read all of this <laughs> and you gave me and you gave me so many of them I was like I thought that was a tall order I don't want to be like not at all. Whatever, you want. <laughs> whatever you want I noticed that she was mentioned in that play. So I was like, okay, he must be have wanted to put her in a play for I, a long time. I did. I have to tell you, I'm a huge fan of Hollywood and the movies and uh, old Hollywood, especially. I love that era. I love the glamor and decadence of it. I love everything about it. Um, that, that whole old world, you know, movie star feel. Um, I, I yeah. have to send you. I promise you I will. There's a play that I wrote to this day. It's my favorite play. It's called Clark Gable Slept Here. Um, I did. I did want to read that. I, I did. I'm gonna. I'm gonna send it. <laughs> to you. All right, send that to me. Because <laughs> I've seen that you have a very fascination with the, with the the older starlet. Yes. And and this and like the aftermath, like you said, they've talked about Billy Haynes and other plays, but they haven't talked about it in the aftermath of how did he deal with this right. later on in life. Yep. Having knowing that he was destined to be the star and he gave it up for love. It's yep. like love or money, you know, type type of deal. And what and, I love what I love about the Billy Haynes story too, which which I think really just makes it wonderful because uh, it, it's it's so sad that he he did. He his his career as a movie star um, died with with Louis V. Mayer saying, All right, I'm gonna end your contract. He tried to make a couple of movies afterwards and none of them had the success that they would have. But what's so good about that, it's so wonderful, is that he reinvented himself because, well, I've always liked being a, an interior designer, so let me try this. And the man went on to, you know, decorate the Ronald Reagan White House, for God's sakes. Um, so he became a, uh, an icon and a star in his own right, being an openly gay man in a time when you couldn't be an openly gay man. So he, he really did 
fight the system and lose, but in the long run really did win because he was able to be true to himself. And he didn't become, you know, bitter and fall into like, I think that's an, an interesting thing. Because, right. you know, he very easily could have just been yep. fallen into alcoholism and, but You're he was able to that. make it work and yep. move through. So, the, yeah, I, I love, I love the code. If you haven't seen the code, people, please go see this play <laughs> or read it. Uh, what genres would you like to tackle that you don't think you have tackled yet? Um, I, I am for the first time I've been, um, uh, asked to do a musicals. So for the first time, I've got two musicals on the horizon, which I'm very excited and just, well, I shouldn't say slightly, um, more than just slightly terrified about doing both because these, these are yeah. things that I haven't done yet, but I'm really excited about the prospects. It's something I've wanted to do for a long time. I just haven't found the right project. And I have two working with two really wonderful um, uh, collaborators that I'm very excited about the, the prospect of that. Um, I want to write another farce. Uh, because the last farce I wrote was Sweet Surrender, and that little play continues to this day to get done in um, uh, not only theaters throughout Europe, because it's, it's extremely possible in Germany and Austria and Sweden and, and Poland, um, but also in high schools and colleges and community theaters throughout America. And so not only um, am I am I excited to do another one because of the financial gain of writing, you know, a solid farce or, or, or creating a farce, but also it's comedy is hard. Everyone always asks what's easier, hard, uh, comedy or drama. The answer is comedy is much harder because it's all technique and talk about timing. It's very, very specific. And as hard as comedy is, farces are that much harder. So I, I like the challenge. So I'm, I'm looking forward to tackling another uh, tackling another farce. Do you have any favorite uh, musicals that you kind of that are that, sure that you can you know yeah? My favorite musical of all time is Sondheim's Assassins. I just <gasps> love the play. Yeah, I, I, a I'm a big history fan, so the fact uh, that there's this play based on this very dark subject and just the the creativity in which they um, he puts it together. Um, is just wonderful. And I also like that the, the music throughout represents the eras from which each of the assassinations take, take place. Yeah. What, what is it, mentioning that, I don't know if a play like that would get made again because of where we are now. Do You're you right. think that a play like that could get made again? I, I, I never say never about anything. Um, the world is constantly changing for better or for worse. And so, yes. you know, in just recent history, <laughs> that I would say never would happen are happening. So um, exactly. for, for the longest time, I never thought that um, same-sex marriage would be a thing. And so, like I said, I, I, as a result of that, I never say never anymore. I, I would hope that the world is always open to any interpretation. And I think theater is always evolving and changing and becoming something new. Um, and I, it's something that I try to do. More so now in, in you know, my older years than I did it as a, as a younger writer is trying to just explore different um, genres and, and try to redefine what, what writing is and what playwriting is. I, I see young writers creating really wonderful, wonderful formats and, and ways to tell stories. And, and I applaud that and, and um, I try to emulate it. What, what do you think theater is missing today, other than money? 
or more money. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. You, you took the words right out of my mouth. Money. Money. It's that simple. I mean, because there's so many great, really wonderful theater companies throughout the regions that I've worked with. And, you know, back in the day, um, such, and I'm talking back in the 90s and, and late 80s there, you know, off-Broadway was where you created, where you found all the great stuff. All this. Sam, really Sam Shepard. I yeah. mean, yeah. where are those plays well, that are like, what is this? It's the truth. And I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not bashing Hollywood, or, not Hollywood, um, Broadway or anything like that, but Broadway right now, because it's become so commercial, it's, you know, you, that's an awful lot of money to be putting into something. I mean, what, you, what used to cost, you know, hundreds of thousands is now millions of dollars to produce a, a big musical yeah. or even a straight play. And, and so you, you want to do something that where the, the, the gamble isn't, you know, as high as it will be. So you do, that's why there's so many jukeboxes. That's why there's so many movies from the eighties because there's name yeah. recognition and the people that come in from the middle of the country, you know, oh, I remember Pretty Woman. Yeah, that was a great film. Yeah. Let's go see that. And, or Mrs. Doubtfire. And, and so you get these, these titles that people recognize. And so they go to see it. And so it's, it's a safer investment. Um, but back in the day, yeah. people were, you know, and the thing was back at, uh, off Broadway back then, you could put theater up in a storefront and it didn't cost that much because the rents weren't that bad. Now, good Lord, nothing is affordable. And so the, the uh, off Broadway is, you know, it's, it's this big, it's so tiny. The, the whole off Broadway world is it's just so much smaller than it used to be. Do you think, because you've, a lot of your plays have gone into other countries. You've mentioned Germany. Uh, I'm studying German, so, you know, so nice. I, was, I, was, I was fascinated when I heard that. I was like, as soon as you said that somebody in the in another country is like, oh, I bet it's Germany. And as soon as you said Germany, I was like, yeah. That was. But the thing that those countries have is they have a lot more funding that just goes straight to the arts so that you can take those risks. Absolutely. Whereas here you you mentioned it it has to almost be risk proof yeah because you can't really you know even if you have a lower budget it's still such a high overhead that it's like we don't sell enough tickets in this first week it's gone it's you're absolutely 100 right i mean that's why you know and thank god for you know county funding and state funding you find it but it's it's so there's so little of it i mean in in florida i've watched the the state funding get chopped and get chopped again. And, you know, and the, and the, the, um, the arts, uh, departments of these, of these, uh, the, the, the county, the Dade County in Miami, where, where, you know, I get fun, my theater company gets funding. They're amazing. They're remarkable in the amount and the support that they give it, but the state funding, you know, they, they're always struggling, you know, so, and every day it gets a little bit better and then take two steps back. And, and so you're, you're hopeful, but, but that's what it really comes down to, because you really want to, you want new work to be supported. And, and it, like I said, it used to be off-Broadway, but now where you're finding most of the, the new work, the new exciting work that's kind of making its way to Broadway is in the regions. You know, it's yeah. because that's, the, that's where you're finding the, the new work because off-Broadway simply can't afford it anymore. Well, that's kind of what they're doing. They test it out somewhere, you know, Maybe not the biggest city in the world, but you know, a, a big enough city, and they see what it does, and then they'll bring it to they'll bring it to Broadway. Absolutely, and that's the way, and that's exactly the way it works because you you don't want to take that gamble. I, I God, I used to tell this. I haven't told this story in years. In 1921, and I'm probably going to get the, the numbers all wrong, 
but mm. it's, it's something close to this. In 1921, the first year that Humphrey Bogart, with the movie actor and star Humphrey Bogart, first appeared on Broadway, take a guess how many straight plays, not, not musicals, just regular straight plays, appeared on Broadway in 1921. Take a, take a step. I have no, I, I don't know, 10? <laughs> 106. 106, pro, 106 productions, plays, not musicals, plays, appeared on Broadway. In 1996, guess how many um, straight plays appeared on Broadway? 30. Six. So I was backwards. <laughs> but it just goes to show, I mean, back yeah. in, the, in the 20s and 30s, well, of course, there was no TV and, and film was just in its infancy, but... You know, they put a show on Broadway. If it didn't do well, no problem. They took it away. Two weeks later, there was another show in that theater. I mean, it's just how it went and how it worked. And that there was, you know, this golden era of, of plays and, and musicals were just becoming what they were becoming. So it was a very exciting time. But again, it, putting up, you know, you know, over the years, over the decades, uh, these past, low these hundred years, it's just gotten very expensive. Putting up theater has become a very expensive thing. I think it's... Uh, I I think it's frustrating though, because we're seeing them just, a lot of the Broadway plays are just films that are being readapted into a, a play. Yeah. And it's like, it's not much, there's nothing new about it. They weren't meant to be plays. And you're trying to take the source material and like, ah, we'll put it into here and throw it in there. You know, it's like, it. it I don't it's, think it works. It's it's what we're talking about. It's It's exactly what you're saying about you know, it's, it's, we're talking about millions of dollars and you don't, you want to make it the safest gamble as possible. You want it to be a safe investment. And so yeah. you use names that people recognize and that's, and that's, unfortunately, that's the world that, that we're in right now. You think back, you know, 20 years ago and when there was a new musical up on Broadway, it was a new musical. Now the majority are, you know, every so often you'll get a, a new musical that is a new musical that has was written specifically yeah. as a musical as opposed to a, a 1980s yeah. movie that's you know very rare song. yeah <laughs> we added two new songs oh wow <laughs> yeah. it's like you're sitting there listening to a greatest hits album yeah you know it is like but without them looking like the person no, no, it's the truth it really is the truth I mean, uh, I'm waiting for them to do. I'm sure they're going to do Prince, uh, the Prince, uh, any the Prince play. <laughs> I'm surprised they have it. You know, somebody's probably listening. It's like, oh, what a good idea. Let's I, let's I, go I, do I, that I, immediately. You know what? I, I think I'm not quite sure, but I wouldn't be surprised that if they don't make Purple Rain into a musical. I'm just saying. I'm putting it out oh, there. Yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. Now it's already. Now it's in the universe. It's going to happen. It is. It is. Now you um now you will like to act in a lot of your plays. How do you you've you've talked a lot about this that you know you're not if a director gives you a note, you're not like, oh well, I'm the playwright, so you know, this is the way I see it. You're very much able to divorce yourself from the is that something you always had, or do you think that's something you cultivated? Always. I've always been that way because I have again, I've I I stepped into the business of really loving the collaborative nature of it. And I've seen, I've seen early on, I saw really a, a playwright just behave really badly. And I was an actor in his show and I went to myself, you know, note to self, never ever do that because it doesn't serve anything. It just makes the, you know, the actors and everyone in the room go, oh my God, this guy. So I said to myself, like, okay, note to self, never ever do that. Just because it doesn't, it doesn't serve the play. It goes back to serving the play. 
So as a result of that, if, if I have a project and, and again, it's, I, you know, it's not of the 35 plays I've written, I'm going to say there's about seven or eight that I've actually acted in. So it's not that many that I've actually acted, maybe, maybe eight to 10 at the most. Um, mm -hmm. But if there's a part that, um, that I think I could do that would fit, I'll suggest it. If the director says, no, I'd rather you, you know, be on, on this side of the table with me, I'm like all good for that. And if they say, yeah, I think you'd be good at it, then we do that. But I never, ever, if, I, if a director gives me a note, I think my job at that point as an actor is to be the actor and to take the note. If it doesn't, if it doesn't feel right or if it's wonky or if I'm having trouble with it, I'll talk to the director um, as an actor and say, okay, so I'm having trouble with this. How, do we, how can we address it? But I will never fall back on, on the playwright so I know better because, like I said, I think that's just that doesn't serve the process or the play. And to me, it's always about serving the play. So you have that collaborative process. Is that something you had, was that instilled in you at a young age, the collaborative nature of yourself or? I, I guess, I think so. I don't know. I just, I just am. I've, I've always taken pride in the fact that I play well with others. So, mm. um, so yeah, as far as, as long as I'm known, I've, um, uh, I've, I've, I've really, I've, cause, and again, I love directors. I love actors. I love, you know, what they bring to the table. So I'm always very, um, uh, very receptive and any kind of notes. Keep in mind, it's not like it's a free for all. If there's someone gives a note and it's just not a good note, we'll try it once. And then everyone sees it's, it's just bad. And so you, you move on. But sometimes, um, more often than not, someone, you know, a director say, can we try this? And it's like, wow, that's really wonderful. That's done. You know, I'll and you, you mentioned, you mentioned a great point, you know, let's try that. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's becoming harder and harder to do in theater because there's not enough time to rehearse. So there's not enough time to try as many things like, like you used to be able to do. It's like, okay, we're going to work, you know, six weeks on this play, two months on this play. Now it's almost like, okay, we got two weeks. Uh, everybody, you know, your lines get up there. Here we go. <laughs> it's like, you're lucky if you get to, you know, most of the uh, trying stuff has to almost happen, you know, before you even get there. Yeah. Uh, you, you well, kind of just... I, I have to say as an actor, I come in with, you know, not, not anything really, you know, locked down because again, you want to be open to what the director brings. But if I have questions um, as an actor or even as a playwright where I want to, you know, there are things that I'm not quite sure of, I, I try to get as much of that, you know, in the pre-preparation to rehearsal. So I come in, you know, with, you know, at least questions that hopefully can get answered in the next, you know, in the next two or three or four weeks of rehearsal based on, on how many time, how much time we have. Yeah. Yeah. How much prep was, uh, did you guys have for uh, the code? With the code, I asked for three weeks and yay, I got good. it. I got a full three weeks for it, which is, which is good. Usually it's, you know, it's a good solid three and a half weeks for a, a new work. Uh, if you're, if you're off Broadway, you'll have a, um, a much longer uh, rehearsal time, which is to me is a, is a gift. It's wonderful. But absolutely with, especially with the world premiere, I, I always ask for, for three, it doesn't mean I'm going to get three, but at least three, three and a half is what, what I like. And that way it gives you, uh, you know, enough time for rewrites because in any, in any world premiere, um, there's, there's usually rewrites as you go in. So I, as, as an actor and, and certainly as a, as a playwright, I appreciate the extra time. Like you said, there's, it, it, it 
there's so much that's happening. You know, you're seeing what works, what doesn't work. You're seeing if, if there's any of the storytelling that's not making sense. And at the same time, you have actors who have to memorize blocking and, um, and lines. And you have a director who is, uh, who is exploring the play and, and, and seeing what his or her or their uh, point of view is going to be in, in putting it on stage. Now, did you work uh, closely with Joe when you did After? Uh, oh God, yes. From Brancato, yeah, I, I, I believe is his last name. Joe Brancato. Uh, when Brancato, when I did the yeah. um, the world premiere was then at Zoetic Stage, which is the theater company that I formed with my husband Stuart Meltzer and Chris and Stephanie Demos Brown and Carrie Schiller. Uh, we did the world premiere of After uh, at Zoetic Stage, and this is actually this is a great uh, a great story about how this works. After is written in three three parts. It's before, during, and after, and it all takes place. It's, it's about the, um, the families of victims and the shooter of a school shooting. Um, the first two scenes were working really well in that first rehearsal, in that world premiere production. The last scenes, which was the last act or movement, as, as the director called it, just simply wasn't working. So the, after the first table read, I went home and I rewrote a complete thing, brought it in, didn't work. No problem. I went home that night and, you know, we, and again, we're just doing a lot of work with, when you're doing with the world premiere, you're really doing a lot of table work where you're exploring the characters, the circumstances, the, the past circumstances. You're, you're just, you're learning a lot about the play that even the playwright, you know, may not, may or may not realize. In this case, you know, with me, I'm always learning things at the first rehearsal. I really am. And then I brought it back a third time, that, that final, that final scene. And it still wasn't working. And so at that point, we were going to start blocking it. And the director said, well, do, you know, do you want to use this? And I said, no, no, I think I have it now. So th th then that last time I brought it in, it, it was right. It was exactly right. But I rewrote that scene three times before it needed to be. But again, it was because I had a great director and, and a really great cast that really had invested themselves into the, the story and it was about what make what is going to make this play the best play it can be. So um, so I did. I did a lot of work on that and it played off beautifully. When the play moved to New York uh, for the um, the off-Broadway production, Joe Brancato, the director who I also love, um, you know, asked about making one of the characters instead of being a friend, what if it became a sister? Um, and I went, that's a really interesting concept. And so I brought it there and again, worked it and it developed and it worked out really well to make that character it, it really helped the play again serving the play to to redefine that that character so again that's that's part of the fun and, and, and again i like rewrites um because i just do when i was younger it was like no this play is perfect as it is no rewrites <laughs> now you do it enough times and uh, you start realizing how important they are and so now i've really learned to embrace them and really enjoy working on them yeah you, do you find though there comes a point where you just have to go because you can also get into the trap of oh I just get I, I it's not done yet let me just keep rewriting absolutely <laughs> no it, it really does I I always say it's like it's like plastic surgery I know eventually the nose you just have to stop working on the nose because there's gonna be no <laughs> nose left so to me it's 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 like doing too much plastic surgery it's that simple it's like eventually you have to say it's done let's freeze it usually when a play gets published it's like okay no it's published it's done all right so yeah lord yeah, michaels right. lord michaels of snl says you know it's done when it's 11 30 at night <laughs> <laughs> don't have any more time that's when it's done <laughs> exactly exactly so you're an avid reader what are you reading right now 
Right now, I'm reading a play, a play, excuse me, a novel called, not a novel, a memoir called Capote's Woman. Uh, I can't remember oh. the, the author's name, but I, I'm loving it. I am just loving it. It's on my nightstand. Um, Stuart uh, uh, bought it for me, he said, because he knows how much I love history and, and again, that era and the, the glamour of that situation. Um, and so it's about Truman Capote and his swans and how he betrayed them and how they completely cut him off. It's a really great story. Um, and I'm just loving, you know, getting lost in that world. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, Truman Capote, he's a, he's a fascinating character. Amazing, there's there's a thousand great stories in, in, in his story. Yeah. He's, he's great. We're talking about somebody who can interview. That is, he's a fascinating person. Well, that's- It's Recall. Yeah, I was going to say, the thing about Capote, and to his, maybe it's a bad thing, um, but he became such a great celebrity that he, you know, stopped writing, you know? He, yeah, he, he was he at uh, 50, you know, uh, you know, the 54 Club, the Club 54, whatever the hell it's called. You yeah, know. Studio 54, yes. Studio, Studio 54. You're yeah. too young to know Studio 54. I, I, I read a lot, I mean, so... <laughs> You know, I, I'm I'm an avid reader and watcher of things. So you know, I I I when I at um, Lee Strasberg Theater and Film Institute, they gave me the character of doing Capote. So I did all this research on everything, and I watched him at like the at the Friars Club and everything, and watched uh, Rich Little make fun of him and be like, so so I'm quite familiar with him. I mean, there you go. It's sad. Somewhere there's a play, there's a play for him. I don't know where it is, but that, again, that's, see, there's somewhere yeah. in the back of my mind, it's like, well, you could take this point of view, that point of view, but you want, you at least myself, I always want to approach a subject in a way that hasn't been done before. And that's the best way to look at it, you know, because you, that's why I, I love the code. I mean, here you're taking Billy Haynes and you're putting him, in, we're looking at him after he's had to live with the idea of not being a movie star. Mm -hmm. And then you have this other character coming in who is him. <laughs> Who's going through the same dilemma? Right, and he's trying right. to show him yep. what it is, and then you got Tallulah there, who's kind of she really cares for Billy Haynes, but you know she's kind of got her own mess, everything there. But you know, you see how you know she's, you know, when it gets serious, you know, she shuts up. If she was, she didn't care anything about him, she would have, you know. Just, well, it, it's yeah. one of the things, one of the happy accidents, and again, you find the stuff out as you do the research. Was the the, the whole point of putting uh, the play in 1950? was uh, Tallulah had auditioned for the, um, uh, the role of the mother. West Menagerie. West Menagerie. Yeah. And it was, she was by far, everyone agreed. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the interviews, it's in, it's in all the research, that her audition was astounding. She was like perfect for it. And yet, at that point, her Tallulah-ness, the fact that she was so famous and so wildly unpredictable, that the studio mm -hmm. was too afraid to use her, and so they went with, you know, uh, an actress who was well-respected and a really lovely uh, actress who was god-awful in the film. I mean, the film was almost yeah. unwatchable because this, the, you know, Gertrude Lawrence, who's, again, a wonderful, smart actress, is just yeah. so terribly miscast in this thing. Um, yeah. And again, and so Tallulah is experiencing the same thing that Billy Haynes yeah. is experiencing. She, because of being what she was, they kind of, you know, canceled her. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what they would do back then. They would just kind of, I mean, look at Orson Welles. I mean, toward the end. Prime example. Here, he, he gave us Citizen Kane, but because he uh, 
he upset William, William Randolph Hearst. Uh, he was pretty much, you know, never heard from again yeah. to the level yeah. that he, he, he was, but he wasn't. He never got control over his films like he, like right. he did have there. You, you look at Magnificent Ambersons, which the original, which is still a gorgeous film, but at the same time, and then it's this weird little happy ending with this big bow wrapped on the end of it. And everyone's yeah. happy and it's like, what? Well, I, I, there, I went and saw it in New York and there was a biographer that came in and talked about a lot of the things that were taken out. Um, there was a lot of talk about the gas companies and you know the industrial age taking over. They wanted that all out of the movie. The last scene is supposed to be the car going down and you're seeing the smokestacks building up in the background you know, ref referencing where we were going. Yeah, they didn't want that in there. They wanted that completely out. And he was filming a movie, you know, right. somewhere and they just threw it out. Yep. Yeah, the fact that he came back from Europe, I think he, I don't know exactly where, but he came back and went, what? And there's this happy ending tagged onto his, you know, it's like, wait a minute. Yeah. It's just, I mean, that's the way they would do things back then. It was just like, you just, you, you would look how long it took to get, um, uh, the one where he played Falstaff in there, uh, Chimes oh, at Midnight. Right, right. It took so long to get that movie like just released in this country. It was. I love so, that you, you know all this. Is wonderful. <laughs> you have you you you're, you've got all this wonderful trivia. It's it's great. It's wonderful. I I did in New York. They did all of Orson Welles's films, and I made it a point to go down there every single day and see it. It nice. about killed me, but I was like. <laughs> But I was like, I, I need to see these films. I'm like, how am I, I'm never gonna have a chance to do this ever again. And I was like, just go do it. It's a lot of money, but it was like, but it was so much fun to see all of his films. Three cuts of Macbeth, wow. Citizen Kane, Third Man, Tomorrow is Forever, a film that I don't think enough people know about. Oh, I've never seen it. Wow, oh, you, it's so you, good. Saw, you saw the whole canon, you saw every one. I saw all of his, all of his films, it was so, it was so great. Such such a great film. So you also talked about um, how uh, history fascinates you, and you find a lot of what what historical character do you think people don't know enough about that they that the public would be fascinated to hear about? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I don't. I've always uh, you know I wrote um, a comedy, a black comedy, a while back on Rasputin, and. Um, mm. That, that is, the fall of Tsarist Russia has always fascinated me. Uh, the Titanic and that story, again, Gilded America, Gilded Age America has always, I've always just been absolutely fascinated by the, um, that era and, and the grace and the, um, at the same time, the underbelly of, of that whole period, not only in America, but in the world. So, um, so that that period has always, you know, really interested me and, and really fascinated me. Um, there's a, a number of different um, uh, periods that I'd like to, to, I still would like to explore, but I don't have any specific people uh, or, or real life. Um, I'm going to shoot just here. I'm just going to throw some names. What, what about FDR? Love FDR. Again, perfect example. This is a man who not only is, is fought the banks fought the banks at a time where like no one went against the banks. it would be like 
But, but you can't at, imagine a politician but today. Look at what he, but look at what he did as a result of it. I mean, he saved the banks. <laughs> he saved the country. You know, the whole concept of that fascinates me because the country, the country was where it was. And here's a man who is dealing with this serious medical condition. The world doesn't know about it. Um, and yet he's doing what he's doing to save the country. He has half the country that worships him like a god. He's got the other half who thinks he's the Antichrist. You know, it's it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, that's a really... He, he would be a fascinating... Because I don't think enough of the public realize what he did. Yeah. Because I think his history is... They don't want people to realize what he... I mean, he's the reason we have Medicare and things that, you know... Yeah, <laughs> they they would love to you know cut up in, today, but you know he was the one that did that, and it shows that even when the odds were against him, if you fight for something, you can get it. You can get it through. You Absolutely. just got to do it. Absolutely, it's so funny. Growing up too, um, I, it never ever occurred to me that FDR that any of the presidents had any kind of handicap or anything like that. That FDR was in a wheelchair. You know, it was it's because again, they kept all of that information just hidden because that's how the world ran back then. I, I you know, that, like you said, that's that he's a really interesting character. I always like the public persona and the stuff that's behind. I'm, I'm, a, I'm uh, fascinated by that kind of stuff. Yeah. What, what books would you recommend? Any, any favorite oh, books? Oh, God, yes. Um, uh, my favorite novel ever written is F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Beautiful and Damned, um, which is, everyone talks about um, Great Gatsby, which is probably his best book because it's just so beautifully written. Uh, Beautiful and Damned um, is much more dense. Um, it's, it's about a, a, a married couple, a very wealthy man named Anthony Patch who's got, got the world um, at his fingertips because he comes from such family. And all he has to do is wait for his, um, his grandfather to die to, to get the money. And, and so he just keeps waiting and waiting. And it, 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 again, it's, it, it shows, it's, it says a lot about hubris and, um, and about just that expectation. It's, there's something very American about it. And again, the rhythm of the writing and the, and the poetry in his writing in that is just beautiful. So Beautiful and Damned is, is my favorite novel I've written. And there's also The, um, uh, the Devil in the White City, which is um, uh, a nonfiction book about the creation of, the, I think it's the 1894 World's Fair in Chicago. Um, and the, um, at the same time, the World's Fair is being built. Uh, America's first real serial killer is, um, has created a, a hotel, C.C. Uh, Holmes or H.H. Holmes. I don't remember what his name is. Holmes is his name, though. And he's uh, created a, a hotel called The Castle where he's killing people. And so it's this dark black story on one side and this white, literal white story because they ran out of time to, to build a white... In, it got so backed up in creating the World's Fair that instead of painting everything, the colors were supposed to be, they just painted everything white, which made it, the World Fair was just glowing. It was this beautiful heaven-like thing. And it's, each chapter jumps back and forth, one to the, the serial killer, one to the World's Fair, one to the serial killer, one to the World. And it's just beautiful storytelling. It's such a great book. I've read it twice now. And I, I, you know, it's one of those books that I'll go back to, you know, every couple of years, I'll go back and read it again. I just love it. I think Larson is the, the writer's name. Interesting. Interesting. All right. This, this has been great. Um, do you have a, uh, do you have a beginning of the day routine? 
This is something I ask everyone. Oh, sure. I wake up in the morning, I usually anywhere between 7.30 or 8 o'clock, somewhere in there. Um, the, the dog jumps out of bed with me. We have a little Boston Terrier. Um, <laughs> named China and, and me and China will go, she'll get a breakfast cookie, we call it, and I'll make my coffee and then she'll go out and do her business and then go right back to bed, um, with my husband and they, she goes back to sleep and then I'll sit out on the patio because we live in, you know, South Florida and the weather is beautiful and I'll go to my emails and read the, the online, I'll read the New York times just to see what the main stories are. Um, and then at that point, um, Stuart will wake up and, and I'll start today. And that usually might be, you know, going back to writing a play. If I'm writing a play and I'm on deadline, coming close to a deadline, I'll skip, you know, the coffee in the patio and just come right to work. But normally that's how my day starts on the patio with a cup of coffee in the dark. Interesting. Interesting. Do you have a nighttime routine? Do you wind down? Yeah, and it, it varies. Uh, you know, we'll go out to dinner. We'll have, maybe we'll meet friends for dinner. Uh, maybe we'll watch, um, uh, we have a, a few guilty pleasures, uh, you know, housewives or a drag race or old movies that we'll, we'll lay, you know, lay on the couch and, and, and watch. Um, but I wouldn't say there's a specific routine, uh, but, but you know, based on it, whether or not Stuart has a show going on, whether or not I have a show going on, whether I'm in a show. Um, so it, it varies based on the projects that, that we're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, do you meditate? I do not. I do not. I have my own uh, forms of relaxation. I work out about twice a week. Um, mm. I, we, I have a, um, a workout uh, system set up in the garage. Yeah. I don't like going to gyms because I'm a small person. And for some bizarre reason, people always like helping small people in gyms. So it's, it's like, just leave me alone. I just want to. Yeah. So, yeah. Just let, let, let people do it. If somebody wants help, right. that's one thing. Right. If somebody but, doesn't want help, you know, don't. Yeah. Go and it's, it's weird. It's like, no, just go away, please. Anyway, so what I'll do is, and I find myself I find my, that that's kind of a form of meditation for me. And it's not like I do these big, huge workouts. I just like yeah. going out there and it takes me anywhere from 20 minutes to 45 minutes just to do my workout. And I, again, it's, it's in the garage with the door open. So it's got fresh air and I like this, the quietness of that and just the focus of that. And if I'm writing up, working on a project, I find it helps me a great deal. Um, I, uh, but I, I, you know, I, the older, the older I get, the more uh, spiritual I become. I find myself um, uh, embracing uh, the, the, the bigger world and the physical things around us. Um, and so it, it, that's, I guess, a form of meditation. But yeah, I awareness. What's that? So, so awareness. Yes. That's a great word for it. Yes. I, I, you know, accepting that awareness and that, that accepting of it. Um, it just, I find, uh, calms me and centers me. That, that kind yeah. of that kind that, of that that that's a form of meditation that's that's go. great and i, I kind of knew that already that you kind of had your own little process it might not be you know sitting there for 10 minutes you know breathing in and out but you have your own way of doing it in some ways i would say your writing is a form of meditation you are absent boy did you just say a mouthful there because that is very much i find writing to be not only cathartic but in some ways medicinal i really find that losing myself in, in, you know, dialogue and, and in, in, in the story that's being told, 
I, I really find, even if I'm having a really bad day, that just to pull everything aside and to focus on that, that task at hand, that job, makes a huge difference. Interesting. Interesting. Um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. So some people, when they write, you know, some people have to write in the mindset of that character. Like, um, this. speaking of comic books, but uh, he's also written books as well. Alan Moore, he talked oh, sure. about, yeah, yeah, he's a He's recluse in some ways, but a fascinating character. If you listen to his interviews, especially his his takes on writing and politics, but he talked about how he would stare in the mirror and like look at like try to act out, you know, the thing. Like he has to almost completely get himself away from everyone to right. write his characters. And you've mentioned in interviews, you don't you don't do that. Do you take it kind of you're here? And then you're able to turn it off. Right. Absolutely. What what I do with my um, with my writing uh, is that I will um, picture um, an actor. I, I'm sorry. Sorry. You just got you just got hooked into the into the mix now. What I will do is when I'm writing a, a character, um, I will think of uh, a specific person more times than not an actor to say, well, and, and that way, if the actor eventually gets cast into it, that, you know, I've already done my, my perfect casting because the part was written with, with those, those people in mind. But mm -hmm. even if they don't get cast, I find that the, the voice, the personality is cons consistent and, and stays consistent because I have created that, that character based as like a suit for that person to wear. So, you know, they stay, yeah. the character stays consistent because they're based yeah. on people that I've known, that I know. Yeah, some actors get very offended by that. I, I always find that fast and I'm like, I think it's, you know, it's a nice reverence to show to the actor that you can, um, that you're that you're thinking of them in that way. It's I not would, saying here, I want you to play it exactly, exactly. like this. I, I have to say that they're, they're not doing yeah. themselves any fair because I mean, here you've got, a writer who's actually constructing something based on you. And, and I'm going to say about 50 to 60% of the time, those actors end up getting cast. I, I certainly bring their, their uh, name into yeah. the, um, into the mix when, when we're talking about casting, I'd say, would you like to consider yeah. this person? And then sometimes the director will say, no, no, I don't think they're the right type for it or this or that, yeah. even though I know you had them in mind, but I'd rather use, and I'm like, again, yeah. I'm like, fine. I get that completely, but it helps me as a writer. Because, like I said, it, yeah. it, the person becomes a real, actual person. Yeah, well, it gives you something to, you know, frame it out. You know, so you're not just like sitting there going, like, "Well, I don't know." You know, do I have to sit here and go, "What does he, what does he eat for breakfast? What does he do?" If you have an idea of already somebody in mind, it already create it jump starts the imagination to be like, "Oh, I could see him doing this. I could see him doing that." So you don't have to sit there and do all this groundwork. Of you're absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. And, and, and that way too, it's not like, you know, you, you, you've written a dialogue and, and then in one scene, he's one way. And then another scene, it's he's something completely different. Yeah. He's completely different. It's like, well, what? You know that there's at least an actual, um, an actual um, person that you're using as the, the structure. Yeah. The shell. So to speak, yes. You've got you've got a you've got a shell, something to you know, to go with. So I yeah. like it. I like it. Last question: What films speak to you? Oh, okay. This is this is a kooky one. This is yeah. Let me hear. That. I, I'm fascinated. I want to hear. This is my favorite pick, uh, movie ever made. It quite literally changed my life. It is a 1972 disaster film called The Poseidon Adventure. 
Oh, wow. It was before you were <laughs> even born, my friend. It was. I know. I know of the film. I, I haven't actually seen that, but I know of the Poseidon Adventure. You they tried have to remake to see it. it for no other reason, just to make me happy. I will definitely see it. Just it's for you. about a, an ocean liner that on New Year's Eve gets struck by a ninety-foot tidal wave right. and capsizes. Um, I, as I, a ten-year-old sitting in a theater with my dad, I saw it. I'm not kidding. Dozens of times in the movie. Theater. This is before. Before you know Netflix or or cable TV or anything, I saw it. I any family member or friend of the family who went to see it, I made them go and and see it with me because I was just so. And it literally changed the way I I, I thought about things. It made me say, "My God, your the imagination. We could turn ocean liners upside down. How wonderful is that?" Plus, at the same time, there was a, a great, exciting adventure, and at the same time you really started to care for people. You fell in love with these people and you cared when they lost their lives. Just to give you an idea, I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn my, my, oh, wow. my, all right. And that image right there is artwork based on the, that's the original artwork from the poster from the film. So, oh, wow. So you know, posters and films are so, like, I feel like sometimes they're kind of lazy now with the posters. Now. Oh, tell me about it. <laughs> when you look at like the the original Star Wars poster in 1977, it's like it showed all this, or even the Empire Strikes Back, you know, right. or, or Blade Runner, Blade Runner 1980, 81. Well, well, it shows and, and, they, this. and they created artwork. They hired artists to do this beautiful, stunning yeah. artwork that was, you know, based on, you know, that they created original artwork from it. I mean, they still do it now, but not not as much nah. as they used to. I mean, it's become again, it's become very um, commercial. And and you know, what celebrity, what star is in it, and how big can we yeah. make the face on the poster? Or they make it obscure. They like it's oh, just right, an arm. Right. It's just yeah. an arm or an emblem, like it's Batman. <laughs> you know, it's and it's just like, oh well, I'm sure that took you a long time to come up with. Seriously, that's what you came up with, really? You know, a, a, a four hundred exactly. million dollar um, film, and this is what we have for the image. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like for Superman, they just have the S. It's like, oh wow, oh, how'd you do that? <laughs> you know, it's just like. Yeah, they've gotten really lazy with that. Like back in the day, that's kind of how you sold movies was based on box art. Of course. I got I got lost as again as a 10-year-old. I saw the poster long before the movie and I got lost in the poster. I I, I you know, I got a, a press packet on it and uh, again, I would just look at all the images, all the details on that and I just got lost in it and it, it made me obsessed with the movie before I even saw the movie. But again, that's yeah. that's how they did it back in the seventies. You had these these again artists create original artwork for the film. It was really, and I guess yeah. they still do it now, just just not as much not as, as much, sure. not as much. And it's not you could tell it's uncreative people telling them, uh, "This is what we want." Okay, great. <laughs> A coffee <laughs> mug. But yeah, thank you so much for doing this. This was this was great. This was a blast. This wasn't more, but this wasn't so much an interview as it was just sitting around, you know, having coffee and chatting with a friend. I really, I really enjoyed it, kiddo. Thank you. It's supposed to be. That's what it's supposed to be like. So, um, the code. This is the last weekend for the code. If you are in South Florida, Fort Lauderdale area, Fulton Manor specifically, go out and see this play. It is playing 
Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday's Sunday the last at the At the Foundry Theater in Wilt Manors, uh, Ronnie Larson presents, or RonnieLarson.com is where you get tickets. Although at this point, it's sold out. However, as tickets get released or open up, they're selling out almost immediately. So there's, you, you, got a, you got a good sporting chance. Absolutely. Uh, so how else can people find you? Uh, oh boy. I have a website that I'm working on still. I mean, it's, it's got my older plays on it. Um, if not, you can find me on Facebook and I, I'm constantly promoting the newer shows. I've got the code ends this weekend. Uh, in June of this year, we have uh, Mr. Parker opens up at um, Theater One on Theater Row off Broadway in New York. Again, it's called Mr. Parker. Um, and then in January, I have another uh, world premiere opening down in Miami. So everything's good. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Michael. And uh, thank you. Thank you, Justin, so much. Okay, that about does it. I want to thank Michael McKeever for uh, being on the show and doing the interview. Uh, you can find him at michaelmckeeverplays.com. Once again, www.michaelmckeeverplays.com. As always, you can find me at Justin Yachts, and I will see you next time on the DMF.